Orphanage. Why do I do a political show? Well, it has to be because of one of my favorite political quotes, the Gessner philosophy. philosophy. And it says, says, the right leaders feel a sense of urgency in good times and bad, whether facing threat or opportunity. No matter what, they are obsessed, afflicted with a creative compulsion and inner drive for progress burning hot coals in the stomach that remains constant, whether facing threat or opportunity. This is what I also believe, that there's a sense of urgency that needs to be done with every right leader. And that is why I do the show. This I believe. I am very deep. So thanks for staying with me right here on Money Crossfire on Nigerian Food 95.1. Joining me now would have to be Dr. John Osinwa. Of course, uh, good morning to you, sir. Good morning. Uh, I'm glad you joined in uh, via the telephone line this morning just to give a little bit of background to who we are having this conversation with. Uh, Dr. John Osawa is a United States trained climate change and environmental health and law expert with 25 years experience. Um, he has served as the adjunct professor of environmental health law and climate change policy globally and most recently at the University of Abuja. is the regional coordinator for the Society for Occupational Safety and and environmental health. Um, Dr. John Osawa is the consultant to the National Assembly of Nigeria in the areas of environmental health, uh, COVID-19, HIV AIDS, um, HIV AIDS um, malaria, tuberculosis, uh, Ebola, Lassa fever, coronavirus, as well as, as NGO activities in those areas. Of course, he has appeared in many media outfits across Nigeria and um, even here on Nigeria. In full, um, and many of these areas of, spe he has many areas of specialization. Dr. John Osama, thank you for joining in this morning. Thank you, the pleasure. Let's talk about uh, COVID-19 uh, for a moment. Uh, it's a virus. Um, it's a virus that pretty much needs a very unhealthy environment uh, in order for it to thrive and uh, go on globally. More than ever before, one thing has been established now that uh, the human connection cannot be said uh, to be completely absent. I mean, we've seen people move from Wuhan in China and uh, eventually the spread of the virus of COVID-19 did get around to the world. What does this say about how we have catered for our environment and the connection in our environment as we have it today? Yes. Um, what you will find is that over 50% of the diseases that torment us have an environmental origin. Whether we're talking about malaria and the breeding of mosquitoes, or we're talking about viral spread, uh, such as this one, which is human to human, or you're looking at things like cholera, diarrhea, typhoid, uh, and a host of other problems. Even cancer can be traced to the environment. If you're subjected to a certain level of uh, pollution, uh, inevitably you have cancer. So uh, the connection is very strong. You cannot divorce health from the environment. And we are seeing it clearly illustrated with this COVID-19 outbreak. 
Okay, so it, it brings me forward to the question about the origin. I mean, if the environment cannot be disconnected uh, or cannot be made uh, far away, or there's a connection between environment and the spread of public diseases. Uh, I don't know if you did uh, get uh, to hear a little bit about the fact that initially it was believed that COVID-19, or, or before it was renamed COVID-19, there was coronavirus. Um, uh, and coronavirus uh, initially was being associated with uh, the likes of bats and forest animals that were consumed uh, leading to uh, the carriage of this disease. As an environmentalist now, what would you say about uh, the environment and the disease, COVID-19, its origin? Do you think it it's really did come out from the environment uh, around China? Or it's a complete um, a man-made virus, if I will, if I'll put it that way? Well, the fact of the matter is one cannot definitively say that it was a bioweapon that was released from a lab. Uh, we do have some uh, circumstantial evidence to suggest that it could have been so, uh, because Wuhan has the highest rated, uh, what we call category four, mm. bio-research facility in China. It's the only one, it's the most uh, rated facility where they do experimentation with uh, with many uh, microorganisms. Uh, but to definitively say that this virus originated from that lab uh, will not be supported by concrete evidence at this point. But here's what we do know. Uh, looking at the outbreak of other diseases, Ebola, Lassa fever, um, monkeypox, and some other viruses we've seen. Mm. The, there are microorganisms that live very happily in animals, but which cannot be transported to humans. The moment you do that, we begin to have problems. We call those diseases, uh, we, we, we refer to them as zoonotic, this is meaning that they have a, a, a zoo origin, animal origin, to break it down. So there are things you will find in your cat, things you will find in your dog, uh, things you will find in some of the animals that, ru uh, that run around the house, uh, mice, uh, bats, all those things that can live within the organism without any health consequences because they, they have a different genetic makeup from humans. But once those things migrate to humans, you begin to have serious problems. So that is uh, why we always stress the need to have a clean environment. It's very, very critical. As I said, more than 50% of the diseases that we suffer can be eliminated if you have a clean and hygienic environment. And uh, it brings forward the question about the history of pandemics as well. I mean, the environment has had a way of reacting uh, to the issue of um, uh, public health and the environment. I mean, 1918, when we had, uh, when it was uh, believed that what was described as the Spanish flu uh, did go yeah. on in 1918, uh, it did catch on with parts of Europe, United States, and parts of Asia. 
uh, it's even in Africa. Too. Even in Africa, but you know the numbers were not so bad in Africa at the time. But I do know 50 million people did lose their lives globally uh, at the time, uh, which is about almost a century ago from now. Uh, yeah. I, I, and I'm wondering, is there anywhere because some people believe that the environment, or let me put it this way, nature has a way of striking back uh, to enforce some measure of balance. Is there a theory in there that one could uh, subscribe to, to say, oh, oh, yeah, it's a century, the last time something of this nature, of this magnitude did happen. And now here we are again, uh, back around uh, uh, a century, and having how to deal with something that strives on contacts from the environment and, uh, and essentially does well because uh, it's able to go far from what the activities of humans have been in the environment. Well, the, it is mere speculation to say that nature has a cyclical agenda uh, whereby every number of years or every century it would decimate the human population as a way of creating a balance. Uh, and the reason that, that I do not find any cogency in that argument is because we can control these outbreaks. We can prevent outbreaks. We know what causes the outbreaks. We know what we can do to prevent the outbreak. We know what we can do to, to contain just like we're doing social distancing now and lockdowns, those things are designed to contain the outbreak and they're very, very effective. So uh, I wouldn't subscribe to the fact that nature has a way of throwing us this curveball uh, as part of the grand design of humanity. No, I wouldn't. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I understand it clearly, but uh, the issue of climate change, I mean, we had one of the biggest advocates in the former vice president of the United States, Al Gore, uh, and yeah. um, he, he, he released a documentary the, the, way back then that projected the realities that would come around climate change. But however, we have a United States president now, Donald Trump, who cleverly described it as a scam, um, yeah. for lack of be better words. But we've seen the climate as well change around the world. And well, if interestingly, uh, he also said coronavirus was a hoax. Yeah, he did. So I, th I think when it comes to uh, predicting or articulating what is happening, mm. I think most of the time he's wrong, with all due respect to Trump. With all due respect to him. It, it says a lot about what global leaders uh, ha think about this. Uh, I mean, in Russia, it was another perspective that was being uh, thought on. They didn't say it was a Western disease or an Asian disease, but they just felt it was uh, everything for Russia, for example, is some sense of war. Um, in, in the sense of it. So uh, global leaders are reacting to this. And we think about Nigeria and the alignment of Nigeria. Do you think we are properly aligned with the perspective of what uh, the pandemic is in terms of the environment? I think the government is, uh, is doing a great job trying to uh, contend with what has become a global pandemic in some areas. In other areas too, I feel that the the priority is misaligned a little bit. Uh, I, why do you, you know, say so? Let me. Huh? I, I, I'm asking why you say so. Why you think the priority is misaligned? Well, 
Well, let me begin with the good things they are doing. I think the NCDC um, is doing a good job. Almost every day I get uh, text messages from them, uh, you know, trying to create awareness on what not to do and what to do. That's good. There are uh, daily briefings now, I, I gather. That's a step in the right direction. Uh, the key places where we're having uh, clusters of outbreaks have been shut down. That's a good thing. Um, but when it comes to palliatives, well, I don't think the government is doing enough uh, in terms of coordinating relief. Mm. Uh, I also... I wasn't impressed by the manner in which they said they had already distributed $3 billion to people. And, and I saw piles of cash on the table uh, where they are giving people cash in this era where we are saying that money actually is a, a, is a carrier, a, a conveyor of the virus. So I don't think those things were properly done. Uh, I also think that we need to begin to think ahead. Mm. We are dealing with a health crisis, but there's going to be a looming economic crisis. And I don't think we're doing enough to prepare for that, which will be happening in the next few months. Let me give you an example. Crude oil price has fallen to an all-time low. In fact, depending on your production uh, sophistication, the price of oil now is selling at below cost. So it costs you more to produce the oil that you want to sell than what you will get in the market. To, 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 to even make matters worse, two weeks ago, over 50 vessels loaded with Nigerian crude could not be sold. They are floating at the sea now looking for buyers because global production is down Global power consumption is down, so nobody's buying at some rate. Now, when you have a country that largely depends on oil, that is, that potential disaster. Mm. And then let me also tell you something else. We are supposed to be in the farms now, tilling the soil, preparing the ground mm. to plant, to go to agriculture which is another mainstay of the country. Mm. Now everybody is at home. You can't move. People don't have the to put to, to farm. Mm. So that tells me that there's going to be a looming famine in the next few months. Oh dear. Oh dear. So we need to we need to begin to think about those things. Instead of being reactive all the time in two, three months, this is the time that we need to put a lot of the funding into agriculture and local production. What is happening has forced us to focus on local production to so as a matter of survival. Mm -hmm. There are things we cannot import anymore because other people need those things now. So we need to look in-house, empower our local industries to begin to put things we need and sustain that production, not as a temporary stopgap measure, mm. but as a sustainable way of lifting this country 
out of this crisis. Okay. Uh, Dr. John, so I have to reconnect with you after this commercial break. Uh, I, there's still so much to be said. I like the fact you talked about farming, agriculture, rain, sunlight. Uh, these are some of the issues I want to bring up with you after the break. Stay with me right here on Nigeria Info 95.1. Talk show unravels your thinking, makes you stop to listen, engages you in a debate of opinions. I believe this man knows what he is doing. He is a Nigerian. Everything going and on. ultimately brings you to the king of talk radio, Femi D. Live. Welcome back to the show this very morning. Still with me is Dr. John Osonwa. He joins me via the telephone line. He's a climate change expert and environmental health law expert with 25 years of experience. And he also consults for the Nigerian government at this time, as he also coordinates quite a number of uh, things uh, here in Nigeria, safety and environmental health, uh, Society for Occupational Safety and Environmental Health uh, as the regional coordinator, among other things. He's also an adjunct professor of environmental health law. Now, let's come back to one of the important issues you raised, because I tell you, one of the things, uh, the biggest fear in terms of conversation we're having now is post-COVID-19, what would happen to Nigerians? Here, here's the perspective to this. So I remember earlier this year, uh, Nimitz, uh, which is responsible for prediction of climate and rain, essentially said, we're going to have over about if I'm not mistaken, it should be about 297 days of rainfall this very year. Now, that says there's a lot of rain going on. Okay, but before we take on that subject, there was one more thing I wanted to ask you about the COVID-19 virus. Um, it was believed uh, that with the um, extent and the extremity of the sunlight we have in Nigeria, that the virus may not um, do well. But even then, the sunlight in Nigeria, really right now, the temperatures are really kicking on the high part of the numbers. Uh, what's your talk about, what's your take about climate change and, and the perspective of how it takes on Africa differently at this time? Oh yeah, there was, there was that rumor that um, the virus does not do well in hot uh, climate regions. But then I was joking as I do often, I, I ask I ask the person say, "What what if this virus creep, creeps in at night?" Mm, <laughs> and that's that's an interesting one. Oh yeah. So, so we need the point I was making is we need to be prepared. We can't just rely because they say that it doesn't do well in the heat. Uh, but I think it's too early to to interpret the data. Uh, but there seems to be data suggesting that when the virus is exposed to heat, that it may not last as long as it would in more in colder in colder regions of the world. Uh, but that one has to do with free flowing uh, virus or virus that is on the surface uh, somewhere exposed to sunlight. Uh, so we need to watch that data. Mm, mm. But but clearly, the virus is infecting people in Nigeria. 
is infecting people all over Africa. So that notion that it doesn't do well in Africa is false. It could just be that the spread may not be as rapid uh, in Africa. Hmm. Um, but that only applies to indirect contamination when it's left on surfaces. The primary modes of infection would still be very dangerous, which is sneezing, coughing, close contact, sharing of fluids. Uh, so I think we need to be careful. Now, uh, let, let's move past the virus. So the weather is slightly changing now. I mean, it's been raining in Lagos for about two weeks now, but I do know uh, in Abuja, yesterday was one of the major rains we had. Before now, it's been a little bit of wind blows, uh, rain in some parts, no rain in some parts. And uh, the weather is changing now. The weather possibly is going to get cold. Uh, there's more tendency that if people are out there, uh, and we all know that if this is an airborne disease, as it's claimed that there is with, with the temperature changing now, if it's going to do well in lower temperatures, we're just maybe having another set of experience. Do you think uh, a climate change or a change of the weather, let me put it that way, a change of the weather could also affect um, a change of the spread or contracts now of the virus? Yeah, that, that's what I said. I, I think when the temperature is hotter, the virus may not live as long if it's exposed. Uh, when the temperature is cooler, uh, the virus most likely will live longer. Mm. And, that, and that is also uh, demonstrated in the way we preserve tissue and, and uh, even embryos. Mm. Most mm. of the time, if you want to preserve something for years, for a long time, you freeze it cryogenesis so sometimes there's natural cryogenesis going on in places where there is snow and cold weather and all that so i have no doubt that when the weather is cooler certain microorganisms will, will survive longer which also when you look at the treatment a lot of people are advocating steaming your your nose, your mouth, your nasal passages uh, with hot, hot steam, mm. which also seems to suggest that the virus doesn't do very well in hot uh, environments. Mm. And now let's talk about the rains. Now, the post-COVID-19, which is uh, what would possibly follow through after COVID-19, the predictions are terrible when it comes to the economy. The predictions are terrible when it comes to agriculture. Uh, let me take you on when it comes to environment and agriculture. Nimant had already predicted that uh, the rainfall, at least 200 days of this year, would see intense rainfall, uh, possible flooding as well in some very uh, flood-prone areas will take place. But now that we're not sowing seeds, I, I can only imagine what we would reap. Do you think we're going to have strong hunger in the land? I'm trying to shy away from the word famine. Yes, I, I believe so. You know, earlier we were talking about some of the things that uh, the government has done that are helpful and, and commendable. And also a few things I think they shouldn't have done. I read a couple of days ago as a way of mitigating the economic impacts of COVID-19. Government is planning to hire 774,000 people 
1,000 people per local government. I think that's a crazy idea. Because everywhere else in the world, people are downsizing. People recognize that when you have a pandemic like this, it decimates your population, that's your workforce. Mm. It decimates your economic base, your manufacturing base. Mm. It decimates your tax base. In this particular instance in Nigeria, our mainstay, crude oil, is also being decimated. So why would you want to swell your workforce at this critical point? Most of the people we have in, in, in federal government and state government employment don't produce anything. Most of them are political appointments to pacify certain interests. We need productivity-based deployment of Nigerians. And the only way to do that is to deploy them to agriculture, not to pay them salaries, but to give them the resources and the inputs and the fertilizer and the things they need to go and plant crops and produce things that 200 million people will be eating in the coming farming that looms. So when I hear we are going to hire almost a million people again and be paying them as a way of mitigating economic disaster that looms. As a disaster. As a disaster, well, hosting a disaster, if I may say. It doesn't make sense. Mm. We have a bloated workforce. Most of them don't produce anything, sit around in offices. This is the time to downsize. But empower the people. Don't just throw them out in the cold. Empower them to go into agriculture, to go into production, to go into small-scale uh, businesses and make the inputs direct, and visible and transparent. That's what we ought to be doing. Not hiring more people to do what? Hmm. All right, well, that's an interesting thought. Um, well, the organization of the petroleum exporting countries, um, well, an intergovernment organization that has 14 nations, uh, of course, uh, did uh, start off much of its orientation in 1960, is set to meet now to, to drag it all off to see how things should go with regards to price of oil. I know you're an environmental expert. There's so much can be said about crude oil and how it is turning the world around that, uh, at this time with the money that comes from in money that leaves it but there are also non-OPEC members the likes of Russia Saudi Arabia who are keen on making sure that the price is set in a way that it favors them now Joa is a stakeholder we have been trying to move away from uh, relying on oil but then that is not exactly going as planned uh, in the last few weeks and last few years because uh, the numbers are apparently uh, are portraying a whole new ball game let me ask you this what's your take with regards to what would possibly happen um opec the meeting they would have i was listening to the minister of petroleum resources this morning talk about the fact that fuel subsidy uh, will be taken away and uh, nigerians will literally face the real price of uh, pump price from fuel and we're wondering how does this play out to a people that uh, may not have so much so of money to feed themselves at this time? Well, uh, what, what is happening, this coronavirus is giving the world a chance to recalibrate itself and restructure in a way that is more efficient 
if you look at what is happening to us with trial now, the budget that was just recently passed cannot be implemented because all the benchmarks, all the fundamentals have been bastardized by this coronavirus. So you need to build a resilient economy. And this is our, our great opportunity to make that transition. I see governors, I see the federal government scrambling to put uh, hospitals and isolation centers and get equipment. This thing should have been happening. We've, we've had independence for almost 60 years. In fact, this year is 60 years of independence. Why are we just scrambling to put one hospital per state now mm. to build isolation centers, to even get common ventilators in hospitals? with all the money we've been making. So this is a, a great wake-up call because if we miss the opportunity, I foresee famine, I foresee chaos, I foresee social unrest, I foresee more terrorism, more kidnapping, because people will be hard-pressed to survive. So this is a golden opportunity. People are donating billions. World Bank just gave $90 million we need to use that money to build resilience and sustainability. Mm. What we have been doing clearly has not created a solid foundation for us. Otherwise, we will not be scrambling now, left and right. Yeah. So I, I, I hope that what is happening with oil will force us to truly diversify. We have so much fertile land in Nigeria. Just from agriculture alone, we can be a superpower in the world if we if we look at all the commodities, over a hundred commodities that you can produce from Nigeria. We also have mineral resources. We put resources into that. Between agriculture and our mineral resources, we can be a superpower, sustainable. And those things will actually employ people in labor. Oil does not employ people, except for a few experts. The, the employment force that comes from oil is less than is less than one percent of what you can get if you deploy the same resources to agriculture and mining. Mm. So I, 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 this is giving us a golden opportunity to restructure our mindset, restructure our infrastructural landscape and then get to a Nigeria that's truly great. A day in politics is a year, but then, who cares? Oh, you should care. It's not just about what was said or what happened, where, when, how, who knows where. Next, let's understand the story that changes our lives every single day. Join me every day for politics and current affairs more than ever before. I'm Femi D. Amele.